Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, have you gazed into the mirror recently? Oh, yes. In fact, uh, just a moment ago, I looked into the mirror and I confirmed that my shirt was indeed put on backwards. Ooh, by whom? By myself, because oh, okay. I dressed myself. Okay, well, I didn't know how how um, how weird this uh, was going to get. Well, uncanny. don't believe those rumors. But, I dress myself. Okay. All right, not like strange people in the night, like sneak in, dress you, and make sure you have your clothes on the slightly wrong. Whatever you've heard, okay. it's not true. <laughs> but yes, recently I have gazed into the looking glass. Because we do it all the time, right? We surround ourselves with mirrors. Uh, and from uh, from a very early age, we encounter them, we get used to them, and uh, eventually we die, in many cases, in a, in a room with a mirror, or in a, or with a, a mirror right next door into this little in a little bathroom in the hotel room where we finally pass away, this this portal into this strange, uncanny, ocular world. Is, were you just imagining Elvis in the bathroom? Yeah, well, you can, you can look at it that way. You can imagine Elvis, um, you know, sadly passing away there. But then what if what if the reflected Elvis is just standing up watching, you know? Well, that's the whole thing, right? And that's for an entirely different episode. But, right, this idea of reflective surfaces and us peering into them has been around for a long time. In fact, if you look at the myth of Narcissus, you will uh, be met with this idea of this beautiful boy who cannot stop staring at himself in the mirror. And he chooses to die by the side of a reflecting pond rather, um, instead of leaving his beloved himself behind. That is how attached he is to that image staring back at him. Yeah, the obsession with the mirror, obsession with one's own reflection in the mirror, just just as much as we are we are at times horrified by reflections or or adverse uh, to, to looking in the mirror. Um, and and, and I, I just I think back to some of my earlier uh, opportunities to peer into different mirrors, particularly I remember going to like Sears or somewhere with my mom, mm-hmm. like way too much because those trips seemed always seem to take forever. You know, you're going to buy you're clothes right. for you yeah. or your sisters, and they would have this little uh, this this little area with three mirrors. You know, there's like the one in front of you, and there are two to the sides, ideally so that you can stand in your uh, your new outfit mm-hmm. or potentially what's going to be your new outfit and twirl around and see what you're wearing from different uh, vantage points. But those three mirrors also create this kind of. Uh, Mirror world, because if you if you get close enough, especially as, as a child and you have, you're bored out of your mind because you're surrounded by clothes, uh, you, you get close enough to the mirror and you can look in and you see the reflection in the other mirror and you see this sort of endless cascade of mirrors, just, uh, just endless use, just endless use, and or in, endless sort of half glimpse, glimpses of you, and you feel like if you could just sort of stick your head into the mirror, you might be able to see down this hallway of mirrors into infinity. So there's always this. We're, I just I remember all these opportunities to, to look into a mirror and getting just a sense of there's just something uncanny about it. There's something strange about the mirror, and you can't help but let your imagination run wild or feel just a little odd gazing into one. I like that example because so often we think of mirrors just reflecting back reality, but in fact, mirrors are really sort of a distorted reality. Our perception is distorted, and in some ways, mirror adds uh, mirrors add to this idea of these delusions that we hold about ourselves. Yes. I mean, that's the key. Mirrors are truth and illusion 
wound up into one. And I think even though on the surface we really fall into the uh, the eventual everyday reality of saying, hey, that's me in the mirror, that's me, that's the real me, that's totally the side that I part my hair on, even though everyone else is going to see it reversed. But deep down, there's something in us that knows that that's not right. That's that's signaling at least one remaining f- uh, flashing uh, button on the on the the cognitive panel is going off, saying there's something uncanny going here. And I think that's why the countless tales of uh, strange creatures in the mirror, mm-hmm. uh, mirrors that tell the future or or reveal secrets in the past, why they resonate so strongly with us. And if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, I wrote a, a little list article called Twelve Terrifying Fictional Mirrors that runs through a few interesting examples of this. Yeah, so check that out. But I think you're right. There's this idea that uh, mirrors are capturing this sort of self-awareness, this reality. And in fact, there's that mirror uh, cognition test that oh, yes. uh, many scientists will use with animals. In fact, we know that gorillas, we know that chimps, uh, bonobos, dolphins, Asian elephants, they all pass that self-awareness test in a mirror. In other words, you can put markings on them and they will examine those markings. They will recognize themselves in that mirror. And sometimes they will even inspect the inside of their mouth as if, like, do I have something in my teeth? Uh, they'll look up uh, their noses and sometimes they will even check out their genitals. Well, there you go. Where, where can I? Where can I go from there? From an ape looking at its own genitals in the mirror, um, a safe place. I a think. safe place. Well, let's let's uh, let's flee into the past for a moment. Then, uh, just a quick uh, rundown on the history of mirrors. Um, again, we have always, from a very early age, just lost in prehistory. You know, humans gazed into uh, the reflective uh, surface of of some water and were able to see their own reflection. I mean, that's just uh, that just that just happened, and, and who knows when it did. Uh, but humans started making simple mirrors probably around 600 BC. Uh, they used polished obsidian as a reflective surface. Uh, later on, you, we started using things like copper, bronze, silver, gold, and even lead. But of course. Uh, all of this involves very, very heavy mirrors, you know, mm-hmm. and they have to be very small because you're making it out of obsidian or gold or silver. Um, contemporary mirrors didn't come into being until the late Middle Ages, but even then there were problems with their manufacture because you're using glass. And the sand used for glass making contained all these different impurities, and so it was hard to produce a really clear glass-based mirror. Uh, and, and also the shock caused by the heat of adding molten metal for backing that glass almost always broke the glass. So mm-hmm. we, you know, Middle Ages, we knew how to make a mirror, but we didn't quite have all the techniques down. It wasn't until the Renaissance, uh, when the Florentines invented a process for making low temperature lead backing, that modern mirrors really hit the scene. Um, and for the longest, it was all about just looking at yourself. There wasn't there wasn't a lot of uh, real uh, you know, scientific opportunity with the mirror, but of course, eventually, uh, around the 1660s, uh, scientists started realizing we can u- utilize this in telescopes. Uh, and the modern mirror, by the way, is made by silvering or spraying a thin layer of silver or aluminum onto the back of a sheet of glass. And... Uh, most mirrors are made today by heating aluminum in a vacuum, which then bonds to the cooler glass. So that's the, the basics on how we started making mirrors and how we make mirrors today. Yeah, and they became far more portable. Um, now let's talk about light interacting with the surface of a mirror. When a photon, a packet of light, hits a mirror, it's absorbed by one of the atoms in the mirror. And this causes electrons in the atom to vibrate and give off an identical photon of light, the, the one that you perceive in your eye of yourself, right? So your eyes see these reflected photons as a mirror image. The mirror image is reversed, which you can easily see if you stand in front of a mirror with a shirt with words on it, right? Yes. 
And again, um, that the the parting of the hair thing. You know, you always you sort of grow to think you part your hair on one side of your your head, perhaps, but you're actually doing it on the other. Yeah, but in the case of the words, you have uh, the words on the shirt appearing backwards in the mirror. And it is not right to left that has been reversed. The image has been reversed from front to back. Now, this is a squirrely concept, right? Because you're looking in the mirror, you see your right hand up. Um, it looks as though it's right to right. It just looks like it's been left to right reversed. Correct, yeah. But Richard Feynman has an interesting idea about this. And he says, think about looking into the mirror, putting your right hand up and it facing east. Okay. Okay. We're on this parallel plane with the mirror. If you look at yourself in the mirror, your nose, the nose you're touching yourself is pointing north, but the nose that's being reflected back to you is pointing south. And he's saying that this is that front to back concept. And you and I were talking about this earlier and actually um, doing some yoga in the aisles of our <laughs> office <laughs> yeah, so, to so, try to get to the bottom of this concept. Right, because the, the, the reversal uh, situation also comes into play in a yoga class. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, it varies depending on who your yoga teacher is and how they do it. But a lot of the time, the yoga teacher will be facing you. Like a mirror. Like a mirror. And they're going to do the reverse of whatever you're doing. So if we're lifting our left leg in the class, mm-hmm. he or she is going to lift their right leg. Because it's going, because the right leg is going to lift on the same side, uh, as far as the room is concerned, as as our other leg. So right, they're front to back. Yeah, to they're you. correcting uh, for the reversal. If so, they're they're uh, front to back to you like a mirror. If it were left to right, they would turn around, right, and, mm-hmm. and you would be looking at their backside, and they would be mirroring you from from from. Uh, left to right in that way. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's still kind of a squirrely concept. Well, hold another on, way I think that helps. Another way I was thinking about it: um, a, a pane of glass with writing printed on it. You know, you walk around to the other side of it, and and it's reversed. Yeah. There yeah. you go. That's a good example. All right. So that's some some mirror basics there. Um, as you mentioned, mirrors can be curved to focus light. So boom, you got telescopes. You got all sorts of uses of mirrors. But it turns out that mirrors can actually be used. In therapy as well. Yes, and this is where things start getting uh, getting really trippy to think about. You know, it also gets back into that uncanny world uh, that we discussed earlier. Because you're looking in the mirror, something's not quite right, and it, it, it twists our perception of reality uh, in, in a way that we take for granted, but in a way that becomes far more substantial when we're dealing with the treatment of uh, phantom limb syndrome. Yeah, because mirror therapy has been used um, in phantom limb syndrome, also chronic pain and post-stroke paralysis. And the reason that it's used is that reflected images of patients' limbs or other body parts trick the brain into healing itself. Now think about this, uh, the majority of people who have phantom limb um, or excuse me, who have a limb amputated or the nerve supply removed report experiencing some kind of phantom limb and pain, but only some report persistent phantom limb pain, which is apparently excruciating pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've heard some accounts of it are kind of kind of like they, you know, you feel that that missing limb as if it's there, but it, as if it is, say, cramped up, yeah. like you need to move it, you need to reposition it, but it's not actually there. So you can't, it's like an itch that can never be scratched because the place of the itch only exists in, in uh, the circuitry of your mind at this point. 
Now, in the New England Journal of Medicine, Jack Zhao, a neurologist at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, uh, described the phenomenon, and he said that researchers randomly assigned 22 lower limb amputees with phantom limb pain to one of three groups. Now, one group had mirror movements, and patients watched the reflected image of their intact foot in a mirror while they moved both feet simultaneously, or so it felt like they were moving both of them simultaneously. Right. So using one of these uh, these mirror boxes, you end up with the, uh, you could call it an illusion even, that that you're watching yourself move the missing limb. Yeah, and uh, there's a video of this. It's, it's extraordinary. <laughs> they just put that mirror there, and it really does look as though the patient has both limbs intact. Uh, and also, they're moving it around, and they're reporting that it feels like it is there. It's it's uh, bolstering all of those ideas they have in their head about this uniformity. I should add that the uh, the mirror box technique was invented by V.S. V.S. Ramachandran, who mm-hmm. uh, we've actually mentioned uh, at least several times before in the past. This podcast does a lot of interesting work. But if you do uh, just a quick Google search for uh, for mirror therapy or mirror box, etc., you'll find his website that has a lot of resources about uh, this uh, this particular uh, branch of therapy. Now, the second group, they uh, had a covered mirror movement. In other words, patients performed the same movements, but the mirror was covered, so they did not see a moving limb. The third group was imagined movements, so they mentally pictured moving the phantom foot with their eyes closed. So what happened, okay, they had the patients perform this 15 minutes a day, and they recorded the number, duration, and intensity of pain episodes. After four weeks, there were two key findings. First, pain decreased significantly in all six patients who were doing the mirror movements. Second, three out of six patients in the covered mirror movements group and four out of six patients in the imagined movements group got worse and not better. Hmm. And some of this, Zhao says, is that um, it could be that these movements, when you see them in the mirror, could be calming down the nerve signals in the phantom limb or it could be replacing what he calls the bad memories of that limb. And in a nutshell, it's kind of like the, the visual component of this is helping to modulate that pain. Yeah, I was reading that in, in many cases, what you're dealing with is a situation where before the limb was amputated, there was a period of paralysis. So in a sense, it's kind of like it's the echo of the final sensations from that limb. And, uh, and then, like you say, creating a new memory for that limb. Uh, one of movement instead of one of uh, of paralysis. Yeah, and there's there's all sorts of things going on here. So there's there's some evidence that mirror therapy really does help. There needs to be more studies, but there's an idea that mirror neurons are a part of this. There's also an idea that your brain is conflicted because what it feels and what it sees are completely different, and it doesn't really know how to process that information. Um, but as I said. Mirror uh, therapy seems to be helpful in these situations. All right. Well, hold on. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss more about the mirror. And the person in the mirror watching you. All right. We are back. The next scenario we are going to paint for you, I think, is so interesting to me because, again, it's one of those simple subconscious things going on. You hang a mirror in a room, mm-hmm. you ask people to do things, you observe them, and does just the act of this mirror hanging in the room, reflecting back their image, change how they behave? 
Okay. It's an interesting concept. First, I think we should get one thing out of the way for the paranoid listeners who might be wondering, is this a two-way mirror behind which there's a cabal of secret observers uh, watching our every movement? Uh, no. Are you sure? I'm sure. How do you know? Because, uh, well, this is a little trick. If you're ever in a room and you're thinking, I want, you're thinking to yourself, I wonder if there's a secret cabal of observers on the other mm-hmm. side of that mirror, turn the light off in the room, if possible. Or, you know, break some light bulbs, whatever it takes. Because if you darken the room you're in, then you will be able to see through the two-way mirror into the uh, observer's room. Because that, that's how the whole situation works with two-way mirrors. Yeah, uh, two-way mirrors, the, they don't have a coat of paint on the back of them. And what they do is they manipulate light. So in the room in which you are being observed, the lights are are uh, really, really high. Mm-hmm. And so more of that light is reflecting onto the person who's being observed. If you're in the dark room and you're the detective, well, of course, the lights are down low. But if you turn the lights down low in the other room, haha, you can see through yeah, to you, the evil cabal on the other side. Yeah, and break the panopticon in that sense. But what we're talking about here is just a normal mirror on the wall. And it actually is kind of akin to the panopticon situation where uh, in the panopticon situation, it's the, the fear that someone is watching us, the, the belief that someone might be watching what we're doing. And therefore, we have to perform uh, we have to perform better. We have to perform uh, with more honesty, lest uh, someone find us out. We've talked about this before. When people are made self-aware, mm-hmm. they sort of change their behavior. If they think that they're uh, consciously entering into some sort of contract, or I guess in this case it's more subconsciously. But let's get to the nuts and bolts here. We are talking about the Journal of Personality and Social, social Psychology and uh, Neil McRae, Galen V. Bodenhausen, and Alan B. Milne. They found that people in a room with a mirror were comparatively less likely to judge others based on social stereotypes about, for example, sex, race, or religion. And Bowdenhausen said, when people are made to be self-aware, they are likelier to stop and think about what they're doing. A byproduct of that awareness may be a shift away from acting on autopilot toward more desirable ways of behaving. So it's kind of mm. interesting. It's this this physical self-reflection encouraging philosophical self-reflection. Yeah. And we've talked about this before in terms of empathy with another person. You are less likely to judge that other person if you feel a connection. If you are projecting the image of yourself or having some sort of self-reflection, it makes you dwell a little bit more um, about the person that you are considering. Hmm. Because there I am in the mirror, and there are the other people conceivably in the mirror as well. I am maybe seeing myself uh, uh, fr- from this uh, third-person vantage point to a certain extent. Here I am, just another person amid all these people. And also, just to get back down to the existential uh, nut of it all, there I am. Who is that guy? There he is. What's his deal? There he is. There he is. And, uh, yeah, you can see where that would just really... you know. Throw your brain for uh, for a loop there, phil- uh, philosophically speaking. Yeah, you can't know yourself until you know others, right? Yeah. I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm hoping that he'll change his ways. You, you see a man in the mirror? I'm looking at the man oh, of in course. the mirror. That's right. Yeah. It does It does bring up an interesting uh, observation, though. We have no mirrors in our office place, and I wonder if that is by design, uh, because clearly our, our office is impeccably designed, what with the open floor plan and all. You know, now, you know, I say that, but I, now that I remember, I believe we used to have a coworker who kept a mirror on their desk so they could keep uh, an eye on people moving behind them, standing behind them. That sounds more like a house stuff works in thing. Yeah. yeah. 
which is which is interesting, kind of a, almost a magical use of mirrors, using the mirror as a protective uh, instrument. And you see that a lot in uh, in folklore mythology, the idea that the that the mirror just as there are plenty of stories about mirrors that are magical and cursed and awful and gateways to other realms. There's also the idea that there's something pure about the mirror, that it reveals the soul, the truth. Yeah, it can help you spot or spot the absence that uh, that uh, that lets you perceive vampires and, and all that sort of stuff. I think this idea of a coworker having a mirror to look at others is interesting because it kind of loops into this idea of the Venus effect. Because you could, if you're just passing by, think that that person was looking at themselves. Ah, yes. And this plays directly into this idea of the famous paintings of the goddess Venus looking into a small mirror. And if you were to look at these paintings, you would assume, assume that Venus is admiring her own face because you see her face in the mirror. But that's your viewpoint which is different from hers, if you can see her in the mirror, then she would see you in the mirror. Right. This is interesting. You can really go down the rabbit hole looking up images, I mean, looking up paintings of people looking in mirrors. Because in some cases, you get you have a situation like with these various Venus images, where, again, they're looking in a mirror, but the reflection that you see is looking right at you, which means that she, he or she is not looking at themselves. They are looking at the painter, at the viewer of the painting, however you want to uh, get into that gray area of observer versus art. But uh, but then you look at other works, and and you'll find the uh, that they'll actually have it right. I was looking at a number of works by Norman Rockwell, who I, I tend to take for granted as an artist, because Norman Rockwell's not really my thing, and, and it's, he's you know, he's been so mainstream, such a slice of pie Americana, you mm-hmm. kind of forget that, hey, this guy really was a talented artist. And he has a number of images that involve mirrors, including that, that, uh, famous self-portrait where he is looking there. It's like a triple self-portrait because you see he's has his back turned to you and he's looking in the mirror at mm-hmm. himself as he paints an image of himself. Sadly, he's wearing glasses that obscure his eyes, so we can't really tell if the Venus effect is in play. And I wonder if that is why, because he wanted to uh, avoid that uh, conundrum of where should he, where where is he looking uh, in this uh, this strange uh, triple self portrait? Or he was just painting it that way, right? But anyway, you see plenty of him. Uh, I think he has another one of a, of a little girl looking into the yeah. mirror, and in this one, she's definitely looking at her own reflection. And you really get into the Venus effect as well in movies because. What what happens when you point a camera at an actor looking in a mirror? Well, you have to be careful to uh, to avoid having the camera in the mirror that the actor is looking into. You want uh, the, the the film to show an actor looking at his or her own face. So you get into all sorts of weird angles that potentially don't match up with optical reality. Well, and optical reality is the thing here, and that's what the Venus effect points to, is this idea that we really cannot suss out ourselves that well in the mirror in mm-hmm. terms of actual dimensions. Yeah, this is why the Venus effect or or any kind of like filmmaking shenanigans does tends not to throw us out of the experience, because we ultimately, by and large, don't have a good grasp on the ocular reality. We don't really understand how mirrors work. Uh, we just kind of gloss over their uncanny nature. Yeah, and to exemplify this, Marco Bartomini of the University of Liverpool and his colleagues have talked to scores of people about their perception in the mirror, and uh, they've conducted a number of studies. And what they found is that people think, like if, if you ask them the question, imagine you are standing in front of a bathroom mirror, how big do you think the image of your face is on the surface? And Or if you and- ask them the question, 
um, what would happen to the size of that image if you were to step backward away from the glass? So think about those for a second. Like the, the answer seems to be obvious, right? How big is my face in the mirror? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the size of my face because it's my reflection, right? Yeah, and that's pretty much what people answered. And then as for the second question about moving away from the mirror, they say, well, of course, the size of my image will shrink with each step. Not so. Mm. This is not true. If you outline your face on a mirror, it will be exactly half the size of your real face. And if you step back, the size of the outline won't change. It'll remain half the size of your image. And people fail to understand that the image on the surface of the mirror is half the size of the observer because a mirror is always halfway between the observer and the image that appears inside the mirror. Exactly. Like if you think back to the old Marx Brother gag in Duck Soup, and it doesn't matter if you haven't seen Duck Soup. I'm sure most of you have not. You still know the gag because it's, it keeps uh, repeating itself in countless pieces of media where someone thinks they're looking into a mirror, but they're not. It's just an empty frame. And there's someone pretending to be them on the other side, m- uh, matching their movements oh, yeah, precisely. Yeah. And generally the ruse will last for just a few seconds until the, one of the uh, the reflective people uh, out, outmaneuvers the other one, does an unexpected movement that the mimic can't mimic and uh, that's exactly what happened this morning in my bathroom mirror for the person who dressed me you need to get real mirrors instead of just empty frames but anyway if there's someone standing on the other side of that fake mirror Mm -hmm. impersonating you they're going to be uh as far away from the mirror as you are so they're going to be half your size now there are some actual processing errors in people who have mirror agnosia. Now this is a condition where people lose their sense of reflection. And you sometimes see this in stroke patients who have had damage to their brains. They might have uh right parietal lesions. Mm-hmm. In these cases the patient still have um intact the knowledge about mirrors, right? Um, they can describe what they do and how they work, but they can't seem to put it into practice or to really figure out their bodies in, in, in time and space. For example, if you have a patient stand in front of a mirror and the researcher holds a pen over the patient's left shoulder and asks him or her to reach for it, well, most people would just reach backwards, right? You just put your hand up and reach backwards right. and get it. But people with mirror agnosia, they will reach forwards and actually bang their hand into the glass because they don't, the depth and the perception is all off. Huh. Well, I know there's also um, something known as mirrored self-misidentification in clinical psychology. A 2001 study from McGuire Center for Cognitive Science looked at two dementia patients. The two individuals could no longer recognize their own faces in the mirror, but they had no problem recognizing the faces of others in reflection. It turns out both individuals suffered from right-side brain lesions, the portion of the brain uh, particularly associated with self-facial recognition and even the use of self-describing adjectives. Huh. So a couple of ways that uh, there can be uh, something a little uh, off in uh, the architecture of the brain that affects the way that we interact with that uncanny reflection. Now, so that's all about distortion um, and uh, all the ways in which we might get these images wrong. But I thought it would be interesting just to flip this around, ah, get the like a mirror. mirror image, and think back to Vermeer, because there's this great documentary that's uh, actually already out. It's called Tim's Vermeer. Yes. And this inventor set out to try to figure out how Vermeer could create such photorealistic depictions with his paintbrush in an era that was 200 years before the camera was uh, invented. And it comes down to mirrors, which is, and I won't go deeply into this, 
But here you have someone who has created this machine with two mirrors to make this painting, this image, as photorealistic as what we see with our, you know, 3D rich world around us, always getting flattened by, you know, 2D on our retinas. Um, so a little interesting documentary if you want to check it out. Yeah, it's... Uh it's uh, directed by Teller of Penn and Teller, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I I heard about it a few months back and sort of made a mental note to check it out, and then somehow lost that that mental note. But but yeah, it looks uh, looks must see because it's uh, it, it it appears to examine not only the question of how does this how did this great artist create this work, but also just sort of the nature of art, the nat- and and how we we protect our ideas of how uh, art is created and also personal obsession like because it seems like the um, the the uh, the Texan individual who really set out to try and replicate the uh, the process of creating these uh, these these works of art uh, he, he has a, a very ob- obsessive mind yeah. and uh, and you really want to examine it for the length of a documentary oh yeah i mean he i think he worked 10 years on this he even recreated the room yeah. That, um, that Vermeer used. He used the same kind of, um, paints. Yeah, paints that would have existed, uh, uh back in the day. He's traveling to see, uh, Vermeer's work in person. Uh, yes, that he gets the queen to show him that exact <laughs> painting up close so he can really get the hue right when it comes to the colors. And he's asking kind of dangerous questions, uh, in, at least as far as the artistic community, uh, is concerned because a lot of people don't want the, you know, to, to, to face the possibility that someone like Vermeer would have used the best available technology of the time to help create it. Because on some level, it's kind of like saying, oh, well, this artist, we thought they were a great painter, but they really were a great painter who also used Photoshop. Like, there's something poisonous about that idea to us, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah, actually, because people think of it as painting by numbers, that you just get this guy, right, And, and he makes the same machine. And um, in using the same technique, a guy who is an unskilled artist is able to replicate a masterpiece by using this technique. And we actually could probably do a whole episode on this because there are some people who are weighing in and saying, well, that's not a big deal because there are some trained artists that don't use the gimmick, that don't use the machine, and they can make pretty much exact replicas of Vermeer's work just with, with their naked eye. And it seems to me ultimately the the situation, though, is that it's, it's, it's always about the artist at the center, no matter what kind of technology they're using. But you, you see this same argument in various mediums. For instance, in, in music, like I've, I've seen threads where people were talking about electronic music and they're saying, well, the, you know, the genius of say a, a you know, an early Aphex Twin album is not, uh, not going to be replicated or so, or an Aphex Twin album doesn't mean the same thing anymore because supposedly anybody can create that because the technology is there. But that doesn't really hold up because it's ultimately, it's not about the tools, it's about the artist. Yes, to and me, that yeah. artist is replicated in the mirror, right? Many, many times oh, yes. over and over again in different ways. Smaller, bigger dimensions. All right, before we go to listener mail, I just want to read just a quick excerpt from the poem Mirrors by Jorge Luis Borges. He says, I see them as infinite, elemental executioners of an ancient pact to multiply the world like the act of begetting, sleepless, bringing doom. They prolong this hollow, unstable world in their dizzying spider's web. Sometimes in the afternoon they are blurred by the breath of a man who is not dead. So there you go. <laughs> There's more to that poem, uh, and I recommend you go check it out. Do a Google search for Mirrors by Jorge Luis Borges. 
All right, uh, let's read a couple of emails here. We have one from Amber, and it's about outsourcing memory that we just covered. And uh, she says, hey, guys, I loved this topic. I listen to you guys at work while I complete all my tasks via data entry in some shape and form. Anyways, I found this so fascinating because I thought of all the things I used to rely on for outsourcing my memory. Everywhere I go, I always have my phone. It's actually funny because when someone in my group of friends asks a question, no one seems to look it up. I am a Google fiend and always have to find an answer right then and there. It's strange how if we think the information will be stored, we don't memorize it. For instance, I use an app for my workout routines, and if I didn't have it, I'd be lost, whereas my husband goes and just does whatever and remembers his own routines. And talk about a blast from the past. Lately, there's been a craze, and I've joined it via an app called TimeHop. This app will go back one, two, three, four years on your Facebook and say what you posted on that day. So, of course, I don't remember how I felt. Last year, today, but now I can just pull it up and see what was going on in my life at that time. Anyway, thank you as always for putting out such great information and keeping my mind sharp throughout my daily grind. Sincerely, Amber. Huh. Now, that that was interesting because we talked about this idea of revisiting yourself and your states throughout the history of you, right? So if you go back on your timeline four years ago, that's just sort of the beginnings of, of how you can begin to construct that memory. Yeah, because there are all these slightly different yous that spread all the way back through time. I've been thinking about this a lot, probably more than I should, uh, in response to this craze on Facebook. I'm sure you've seen it, uh, where there are all these, which X-Men character are you? Which yeah. soda are you? And now even, which How Stuff Works <laughs> podcaster are you? Have you taken this yet? Yeah. Yeah, who'd you get? Me. Oh, well, well good for you. It was weird like that. <laughs> but but it made me, because I took it, and I, you know, when I answered truthfully, I got myself. And mm-hmm. even when I just kind of answered semi-truthfully, I ended up getting myself for some reason. But ultimately, it's such a hollow question, like, because you have to ask yourself, which you are you? There's no unified you. There are all these different yous. And the idea that there's a centralized self is just a, a complete illusion. Ah, so the mirrors of you... I mean, because you are somewhat like some other people in the office, taste-wise, right? Exactly. So you would have that reflected back. I'm just not going to stop with the whole mirror thing. (laughs) All right. Well, I have a a few uh, bits of listener mail here to run through real quick. All right. This one comes to us from Fernando. Fernando says, Hello, Julian Robert. I was listening to your podcast episode, A Musical Time Machine for the Brain, and it got me thinking, what if time and space is like a music record and everything that has happened, is happening, and will ever happen exists on the same plane? Our human perception would be the needle that is only able to process the data uh, linearly, giving us the illusion of a beginning and an end. I can't recall if I've heard this idea before, but I know it helped me understand the concept of nonlinear time. Love the show and keep up the great work. Uh, well, yes, uh, that idea, um, that uh, I've heard that uh, almost exact um, analogy before, uh, particularly uh, with the DVD, the idea that time, that, that our, our existence, yeah. our life is a movie on a DVD and time space is the DVD, the physical DVD itself. There's no beginning or end. Everything has always happened, but our perception of it happening is the uh, enigma. I love the, the DVD idea because it's all there. Yeah, just I waiting for you to dip into it. Max Tegmark, I believe, was uh, the yeah. individual we can uh, at least partially attribute that to. Uh, but, yeah, essentially that's what's happening. All right, well, one more bit of listener mail. Um, Eric writes and says, Julie talked about going to sleep with basil in her mouth. This is a very bad idea <laughs> due to choking hazards, so please don't do it. We like Julie on the podcast, and we would be sad if she couldn't do it for some reason like being dead. Julie, uh, explain yourself. 
Thank you, um, Eric. I don't remember that the what we were talking about specifically, but something about I don't. Oh, I think we were talking about having some. Oh, yes, lucid dreaming. Yes. And we were talking about the ability to to lucid dream taste, and I said maybe if I put basil under my tongue or something that that would trigger that. But you don't um, do this. I, don't I did. Oh, you did. Uh, the person who dresses me plucked it out just in time. Okay. So um, I'm fine, Eric. Thank you for writing in, though. All right. Okay, so hey, you want to get in touch with us? You want to rap with us about uh, mirrors? We would love to hear from you. Uh, your experiences looking to mirrors, in, into mirrors, your any uncanny uh, ideas that have come to you about mirrors, about the nature of mirrors, your favorite weird mirrors from uh, from folk tales, horror movies, and what have you. Let us know about all those. You can find us, as always, at the mothership stufftoblowyourmind.com. Also, yes. you've got to check this out, guys. Robert has an awesome new... Uh, series coming out, Monsters, Yes, right? Monster Science, I think is what we're, we're calling it. And you can find that on Mind Stuff Show on YouTube. Exactly. And yes. I'm not going to give a whole lot here away, but I do want to just add here that Robert is wearing a fine turtleneck in this. Yes, yes. We, we purchased a turtleneck uh, especially for this uh, production. So uh, ho- hopefully it'll be a hit. Uh, you know, Monsters, the science of monsters. If you like my blog series um, Monster of the Week. It's kind of that in video form with some shenanigans thrown in. So yeah, so check it out. Yeah, check that out. Uh, we'll have a uh, we'll we'll have a, a little bit of a teaser that'll go up uh, this week. So uh, yeah, check that out. Check out our various social media accounts: Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, Google Plus. You'll find all those links at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And as always, you can reach us via email. Yeah, so if you have some thoughts that you would like to send to us, please do send them to blowthemind.discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs>